At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. A banner week in terms of space exploration, particularly lunar exploration, because this is the week when the year 2022 has finally caught up with the year 1972. What do I mean by that? Well, it seems like we used to go to the moon all the time. People got bored. We were going to the moon so often. Oh, another moon trip. It used to be a big deal when an astronaut would walk around on the moon. Then by the time uh, the last moon mission uh, happened back in 1972, people would shrug and say, oh, okay, what else is on? And we have not been to the moon for the last five decades. We have had... The last four presidents all say they want to go back to the moon. Well, this week we saw some dummies, no astronauts, but some dummies. I'm not making remarks about anyone's intelligence, just their lack of bio biomaterial. We saw some dummies make the return trip from the moon as part of the Artemis 1 project. Now, Artemis 1 is going to lead to Artemis 2 and Artemis 3, and Artemis 3 will include some major, major leaps forward for mankind and for the United States on the moon. Here to help us break that down, as well as a ton of other space and aviation news this week, is the great Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster. We call him an edutainer because he he educates as he entertains. He also has a great deal of expertise in in astronomy, aviation, space, you name it. And he does a great podcast on WABCradio.com. Steve, it is great to talk with you. Well, good morning, Frank, and a Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and Happy Holidays to you and the listeners. It's a joy to be back, and thanks for having me. The, the joy is ours, uh, not only because we get to benefit from your knowledge, but that wonderful tailor-made-for-radio voice that we're going to enjoy for the next hour. By the way, well, uh, we, we are going to take some calls. If people have questions, not only about Artemis, but about uh, anything related to space and aviation, now's the time, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. All right. Um, Give me your take on this Artemis One mission. It seems like everything just went swimmingly from start to the splashdown landing a couple of days ago. Anything I'm missing? No, absolutely. And after a 1.4 million mile journey, 25 or so days, we find this to be an exceptional mission after about four delays. And as Bill Nelson, NASA's head, said, we don't launch before we're ready to go. He was absolutely right. It starts off with this November 16th powerful launch, 8.8 million pounds of thrust. So powerful. How powerful was it? It actually blew off some of the big blast doors that were on the launch tower, causing some minor damage. Just to show folks, if they look at their videos, maybe YouTube or wherever, you can just see the power of that candle as it goes up into the nighttime sky. An unusual launch. Actually, we all wish we were there. And if anybody listening within the sound of our voices, they had a ringside seat to something that hadn't happened, Frank, since you talked about the year 1972. The last of the great Apollo launches was a nighttime launch, interestingly enough, in December, when people said that the Earth rocked and that big candle, the Apollo Saturn V, you know, leaped up into space. But yes, a very successful mission by all accounts. The three of these dummies, uh, no disrespect to them, you know, Campos and the two other dummies that were strapped with all kinds of instrumentation, 
But what's interesting, if anybody hasn't seen it, it's kind of good to watch the replay, a very successful re-entry of this particular Orion capsule, as I should say, doing something very unusual, doing a skip re-entry into the atmosphere. And just to go backwards in time, when the Apollo capsules came back, many people still scratch their heads and say, well, wait a minute, isn't this technology so old that they have to just land in the water? Doesn't Elon Musk bring spacecraft back to the Earth? Yes, he does. But think about the Orion capsule. When it came back, it did this very steep and very rapid one-time type of descent into the Earth's atmosphere. The problematic thing for that time period, and it worked, thank goodness, thank God, is that it had this one-shot capability to come in because they didn't have the electronics and the technology then to do this skip maneuver that they did now with Orion. Well, what's the difference? When Orion came in, it skipped over the atmosphere, and it actually reduced itself from going 32 times, get a little of this, Frank, 32 times the speed of sound to lessen the heat ablation that's off this new heat shield that they have. Hmm. Apollo had to come in hot and heavy in a one-time pass into the atmosphere. So it's very interesting. The new technology that's on Orion, obviously the new heat shield works well, but Apollo couldn't do that because if they tried it without the sophisticated electronics and technology, guess what would have happened to those three astronauts if that skip was a little too high they would have remained and turned in space and never returned to the Earth. So there's interesting things going on there. I know I've asked you a similar question to what I'm about to ask you previously, but forgive me, and I think it's one that a lot sure. of people are curious about. You talked about the differences in technology between the Apollo uh, class vehicles, the Apollo mission vehicles, mm-hmm. and these uh, this Artemis uh, test vehicle or test space, uh, space yes. vessel. If we got so good at going to the moon... From Apollo 11 in 1969 to 1972, why has it taken 50 years for us to pioneer a new way of going to the moon? Why couldn't we, when George Bush wanted to go to the moon or Donald Mm -hmm. Trump, why couldn't we just do the same thing that we had learned to do back in 1969 again? Why did it take such an investment and, uh, and a new innovation in terms of technology? Well, it goes back to politics, and again, not, not to pick on anyone in particular or any party. We'll keep, leave that out. Unfortunately, well, fortunately for the technology, we could have been on the planet Mars by now with manned missions to Mars, no matter how dangerous they you know, really are, if you really think about it. Nobody in their right mind would do one-way missions. But unfortunately for many, that they looked at this and said, well, we really need to build lunar you know, bases and really colonize the moon, not only for the enrichment of material on the moon so we could lower our energy problems here on the Earth. Most of that money was spent on the shuttle. And though we've had mishaps with the shuttle, it was actually a great delivery van, a great delivery bus, if you want to call it. But unfortunately, we got uh, kind of a little bit off track, if you want to talk about it, about this moon mission. So the technology has always been there. And actually, Frank, it even goes back deeper during even the Kennedy administration. We were testing what we called the NERVA project, which was a nuclear-powered rocket that could have gone way out into the deep solar system, manned or unmanned. But those projects were canceled because other priorities, including military projects, were taking shape. And again, if you look at the budget that NASA really has out there, I don't have the numbers sitting in front of me. People can look this up. It's really a minuscule amount of money in comparison to other federal budgets that are out there, you know, for the for the three-letter agencies that are all out there in the United States government. But you got to go back, as you and I were talking about, Artemis Orion, a great success. And, and many people were saying, oh, you know, why are we wasting our money on these moon projects and things like that? It still gives American pride and also international pride because it's not just an American mission. It has a lot to do with the European Space Agency. They are pretty much a prime contractor on the other part of Orion. That's not the part that is just the capsule. That's, that's us and a lot of American defense contractors. But ESA is responsible for that part, which is the propulsion on the back end of Orion, which got it out and far away from the moon, the farthest that a human-capable spacecraft has ever been that went way out about 270,000 miles away from the Earth. One of the things that I think I've probably been guilty of from time to time is using the terms Artemis and Orion interchangeably. Just clarify uh, these terms for the audience. Artemis is the project and the mission, and Orion is the vessel itself. Is that right? Yes. 
Absolutely. That's the best way to say it. You say it so accurately. Artemis is the program as we look deeper out into moving out to the moon, let's say, and then on to Mars. And there was a project that was actually canceled. If you talk about the Bush administration in the in the early 2000s we're talking about here, there was a project called Constellation. And that project never really got literally, no pun intended, off the ground. They had one Ares, the god of war for Mars, A-R-E-S, not, not, not the zodiac sign, that tested a rocket, a very, very powerful rocket. But unfortunately, the monies during the Obama administration, that whole thing kind of shifted and it kind of faded away very rapidly because, obviously, NASA can't do what the federal government does, uh, obviously print money on their own and decide to do, uh, you know, whatever they want and create the money just out of thin air. So their budget, again, is, is limited. It's pretty, it's pretty minuscule when comparison to what I mentioned before to what other government agencies get, right or wrong. So what happens next? Or what's going to happen next and when? Okay, the next in this, and again, again, kudos to NASA for what they did. A great mission in conclusion. We can talk about some of the finer details too, but let's look at Artemis too. Now, this is just a generalization right now. They don't have an actual firm date, but according to what they're saying on their website and calendars all around there, around the world, probably May of 2024 is going to be the manned mission. So it's going to be pretty much a repeat of what happened with the three dummies on board of testing out the spacecraft once again. That would be pretty much a replica, dot, 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 with the movement way beyond the moon. Apollo 8, back in 1968, right around this time, of course, around Christmas of 68, when we sent, you know, American astronauts to do the orbital mission around the moon. Such amazing thing, too, and that has a long story. Sometime we can talk about that in great detail. But the interesting thing is that will be a manned mission Probably May of 2024, maybe at the earliest. Now, that could be pushed back. It all depends on a lot of other things. What are those things? The capability of crews, getting them ready. The capability of the rockets to make sure that they get tested. What happens if we go through a series and cycle like we did, maybe three or four launch attempts where there's leaks in hydrogen? We're learning so much. But then the creme de la creme of the whole series is Artemis three, And they're saying, this is another generality, Probably by 2025, we're going to have the first crew to do the lunar descent to go to the surface of the moon, and there will be the first female and probably the first female of color and astronauts to go to the surface of the moon. This will be interesting because it may be sooner than many people thought, but in many people's expectations, not soon enough. So both sides have a lot to say in this conversation, I'm sure. Well, that's pretty exciting. Eight hundred, it, it certainly is. 800-848-9222 if you have questions. That's a 1-800-848-9222. You alluded to the uh, history of NASA, a lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda situations, and sure. said that if we had played our cards right in terms of investment in space exploration, we could be doing manned missions to Mars at this point. Absolutely. Where are we in terms of the Mars mission and in terms of exploring Mars? I think NASA has a plan that's on paper. I think Elon Musk, and he'd be a good guest to talk about that. I'd love to listen to that man because in his head, could you imagine if you could do his Neuralink downlink in his head mm -hmm. and imagine some of the plants that would unfold and imagine if you could put them on this big, big screen right in front of you. There, I think, lies the answer if you're looking at something to happen in a relatively short period of time. But the interesting thing on this is I don't necessarily think NASA will be the first of the Mars mission, you know, capable hmm. spacecraft. I think he'll do this first. He's building the Starship uh, spacecraft. He's also responsible. We should also interject him into the equation right now. He's got some deep contracts with the federal government, meaning with NASA, and also launching some of the military secret spy satellites. That's also something that he's got, which is actually providing him and his company with a much-needed cash as the Tesla thing continues to, you know, bounce up and down. And many of the other projects, of course, I need not mention the Twitter situation. But with as far as with Mars, I would imagine that he might be one of the – if he might simply be the first to have a manned mission to the planet Mars. Uh, NASA does have plans, as I was talking about, kind of in a low-key way. But they're going to probably utilize uh, some of his space technology for this. But he's also responsible for one of the lunar landers. And I think Jeff Bezos is also clamoring to get involved in one of the lunar lander projects, 
also with NASA. So there's a lot of intertwining. But as far as that mission, I don't know. I'm going to guess and throw it out there. And probably many of the listeners will have opinions, too, and that's what we like. I would say probably by 2030, there could be a manned mission to the planet Mars. And that's pretty exciting by itself. But when we started this conversation, Frank, I said before that if the budgets were different and we developed the nuclear Nerva rocket that was looked at in the 19, uh, late 1960s, that was something that actually was working. And how about this late breaking news? We're hearing technologies developed by the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory where what we call fusion power is possibly going to come online sooner than maybe mm. we thought, not just for us to utilize as a power source, but also that may be a source, which obviously many scientists know, you know, smarter people than we you have in my, in, you know, in my vocabulary and those that are in the know on fusion. Also, a developmental project, like we said before, with uh, Beyond Nuclear to develop a fusion type of rocket power to move us out into the solar system and beyond. Thank you um, very much for that. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about fusion as we continue throughout the hour. A lot of people clamoring to chat with you. Let's try and squeeze in as many calls as we can here at 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Henry in Manhattan. Hello, Henry. Hi, good evening. Uh, I wanted to find out, I know the uh, Moon and Mars both have a grid system on the surface of longitude and latitude. Mm-hmm. Let's take just for the moon. Do you know when that was instituted and where the prime meridian, so to speak, on the moon is and who chose it? Well, that's a very good question. I don't know the exact date that it came into you know into play. But what we call the lunar surface, as far as studying the globe, it's a subject called selenography, the study of the lunar, you know, as if you had a globe. And I have one sitting across from me on my desk, I mean, on the large side of the desk. But I can't tell you exactly where that, you know, zero longitude point is on the moon. But the, but the whole story about that, Henry, is that it came about, I'm saying this way, that it probably came about probably in the 1940s. This is before the advent of spacecraft, of course. But it's an interesting yeah. thing. It's probably something, again, and I'm not guessing here. If I don't know something, I'm going to be honest. More likely the International Astronomical Union. These are the people that studied the moon with telescopes way before we had spacecraft. And the same kind of thing with the planet Mars. And it is very interesting, just like the Earth here. I can't call it an international dateline or something because nobody's gone there. But, they, but all of these planetary objects, obviously circular objects, and even some of these rough-shaped asteroids do have a grid system on them. But that's about as far as I could tell you, and uh, I hope that at least enlightens the conversation a bit. Thank you, Henry. 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, gentlemen, how are you tonight? Great. Sorry this morning. Good morning. Um, so uh, just uh, before I get to my question, Frank, I wanted to correct you. There's nothing innovative about what they did with this mission. It's still a chemical burning process that we've known oh, yeah. about for over 100 years. Uh-huh. I agree. I mean, you know, like I said, if one day, John, they can hopefully develop these powerful rockets that have less than what we call chemical burning rockets. You know, again, I said this before on the program, Congress was the one that decided on the propellant. It wasn't NASA, and that was in their budget. But please continue. You're on, you're on, a, good, you're on a good roll here. Thank you. Um, my question was, um, in the realm of quantum physics, does quantum physics have its own set of rules as opposed to our real world like physics? Well, from, let me put it this way. From the realms of physics, what we understand when we look at the forces, we look at magnetism, we look at gravity, we look at strong force, weak force, and nuclear. In quantum physics, we try our best to interpolate those same things that we have in the electromagnetic side, in the gravitational side. But in quantum physics, there's the problem. There's so much that we don't know that some of those things that we talk about when we talk about the main forces in what we call regular physics – some of that doesn't work. And the problem, John, is that we're trying to dig deeper and deeper, and we're finding conundrums where things don't work in the regular world of physics today. And that's where most cosmologists, physicists, and people that are studying quantum physics, they're just scratching the surface, my friend. There's still so much territory. We're about like 1% out of the whole pie right now as far as a total yeah, understanding. There's, there's the, the scientists, they, uh, they claim that they made two protons um, go faster than the speed of light. 
Well, and, here's uh, here, here's here's the subject on that, and I know we got to be be quick here because of the many callers, and I appreciate this, John. This is fascinating. No, 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 don't be sorry. I love this, and I'd love to have like 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 Reg Frank would love to have twenty two hours to talk Absolutely. about all this. Absolutely, same. But no, John has a very interesting uh, thesis here, and here it is. You're right. What they're trying to say when they talk about the replication of these photons or protons is that from one side of the universe, you could have these objects move, quote, faster than the speed of light. And here's a subject that everybody gets homework from me, Dr. Sky, including myself, because we have to continue to learn something. The topic is called quantum entanglement. That's everybody's homework, right, Frank, until we talk next time, is to continue to study what this subject is. John, you really bring up some really fascinating subjects here. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. Uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is here. There's some fascinating things uh, that you can take a look at in short order in the night sky, including a major meteor shower. shower. We're going to tell you about it and a whole bunch of other things in just a moment. 800-848-9222. If you have questions, my guest for the hour is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Lift off. Steve Cates this hour, uh, better known as uh, Dr. Sky. He does a terrific podcast. It's called The Dr. Sky Experience. You could check it out at WABCRadio.com. We'll tell you what you could hear in the latest edition of The Dr. Sky Experience in just a moment. But, uh, Steve, I really always enjoy hearing your take on what people like me and our listeners can see if they look up at night. And these days it seems like there's more to see than there generally is. What What's happening in the night sky these days? Well, Frank, perfect timing right now because we're going through the peak period of something called the Geminid meteor shower. And just as we're here live on the radio with you now and all the listeners around the nation here and around the world, the Geminid meteor shower is one of the most amazing because here's why. It comes from something strange called a rock comet. More likely, this is an asteroid that's really, well, it may be a dead comet. But what makes this object so strange, it's called 3200 Phaethon. It's an asteroid that gets closest to the sun. And when it does, it sneaks in even closer than the planet Mercury. It gets in within 12.9 million miles of the sun. And imagine the surface of this object, maybe 5 or 10 miles across. If you've ever seen out in an area where there's mud, you know, and the rain dries up the mud... It has these very funny-looking cracked hexagons, and they, like, lift up. Well, on the surface of that asteroid, you're probably looking at these cracks and materials flying off of it from the energy of the sun, that solar wind. So we get to see these streams of particles, but the basic view right now is this shower is peaking. So wherever you're listening to this radio show right now, the other side of midnight, if you have a clear sky, and again, I have to say this, and I have to smile if you could see this in the you know, theater of the mind, Patience is a virtue, right, Frank? Because if you go outside and it's cold, well, can't do much about that. But if you look high up into the northeast sky, there's a constellation called Gemini, thus the namesake of the Mm -hmm. Geminid meteor shower. The moon, unfortunately, is a little bright. But that's okay, because some of these things are slow, some of them are fast, some of them are bright. You're seeing debris from this particular rock comet or this asteroid. And it's kind of interesting, because of all the showers of the year, Best from around 2 a.m. local time, wherever you're listening, all the way till dawn. So get set, because that's really one of the big things. And then here we go. Last week, I don't know how many people got to see it. We were talking about it all over the place. And, of course, with uh, John Katsimatidis on his Sunday morning show. And I appreciate the opportunity there. 
We were talking about this rare lunar occultation where the moon eclipsed Mars. But Mars right now, if you're looking out there in the sky, you're seeing the red god of war closest to the Earth this week. It's at opposition. So that's that orangey red thing that's up in the sky, high up in your sky now. It's within 51 million miles of the Earth. And isn't that amazing, Frank? That's the next planet beyond the moon that people will be going to. But when that lunar occultation happened, the moon is there. That's the destination for Artemis three, And then right there, right next to the edge of the moon, we had a big group in Phoenix who was watching that. And you could see the planet Mars right at the edge of the moon. And we watched it cover it. So Mars is out. You have the meteor shower now. And one, we hopefully will talk about this well soon. The magic of the Christmas star. That's amazing. We, we could do what? A whole two-hour show on that, or if not more, right? That's just an amazing story. Right. Well, so tell us about that yeah. since we're in the holiday season. Well, and uh, yeah. maybe a lot of people are rereading sure. the story of the three wise men following around a star for the first time right. in a year. What is the Christmas star? Well, in the shortest version possible, the three wise men were astrologers. And it's thought through uh, all the records in history that they came probably from Mesopotamia, probably from Iraq or even some parts of Iran. And it's amazing in those days, since they didn't have, you know, fast vehicles or, you know, modern day Jeeps or Land Rovers to travel across deserts. They did it on camel and they saw something in the heavens. And the most problematic thing, the most problematic thing is nobody really knows. There were astrologers. But what happened here last week in our skies across the world was when the moon eclipsed or covered or occulted Mars, they also saw the moon occult the planet Jupiter. Jupiter was revealed by the Greeks and the Romans as a god. It was Zeus, the god of gods, the powerful Jupiter. They saw the symbology in the sky and something that we don't know. It could simply have been, well, science doesn't have an answer for everything, (laughs) right? It could have simply been a miracle from the heavens. It could have been something angelic. It could have been something so powerful like that. But the, the main contention, the very shortest version possible, is that there were this conjunction around 6 BC. Now, people would say, wait a minute, uh, you know your birthday. And what if somebody said you were born, as you insist, you were born on a certain date, and they were challenging it and said, no, you were born five or six years from the date you said you were born. The calendar was changed. So many people believe Jesus was born during the spring of the year. But in April, I believe it was April 17th of 6 BC, There was this great alignment of planetary objects, probably Jupiter and Saturn and the moon all conjuncted. And this might have been one of the theories, probably not a comet, because we searched the skies and looked for comets at that time. Halley's was there, but not at the time that we're looking at around anywhere near the time of the birth of the Christ child. A supernova, probably not. We've looked for relics of supernova for that time, probably not. So more than likely, symbology in the sky but necessarily not something that the average be even King Herod didn't even see the object. So it had to be something very special that astrologers who were trained, and guess what, Frank, they never had iPads or telescopes or binoculars. So it must have been something very special called sacred geometry mm. in the heavens. Absolutely. That's uh, fascinating to think about at any time, but especially as we close in on Christmas. 800-848-9222. Arnold is in Brooklyn. Hello, Arnold. Hello. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think I remember that the Apollo missions used to take a few orbits of the Earth to check out their instruments and uh, yes. make sure the orbit was right, correct. and then take off for lunar injection. Was yes. that done with the with the uh, latest mission, the unmanned mission? I believe so, and exactly, because on this particular mission, just like all of these, they want to make sure that all systems are ready and checked to go, So that you're right, starting with Apollo, this was done to make sure that all the systems on board Apollo, the command module, and everything inside the, you know, even checking out the lunar module then, so everything was A-OK to go and do the burn, in which they had to fire that one rocket booster to get rid of that booster, then push themselves onto a lunar orbit. But the problem thing, or not a problem, but the thing with this mission was, people were looking at the tracker, and they were saying, how come the rocket is not going fast In this particular case, I'm talking about Artemis and Orion. And the thing is, many people didn't realize this, but it's actually going uphill. So it had a slower velocity than you would imagine as it's it's actually going uphill as it was going toward the moon, not in a straight line or a downhill. But yes, you're exactly right. It did a couple of circumnavigations of the globe, and then it did its mission and fired itself off to the moon.
Thank you very much. I couldn't find anything on the website. Thank you, no, no, Arnold. No, it, it's something that's kind of hidden in the in the background there. You're right. Uh, 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi. Good evening, good Frank. Dr. Sky. Yes, good morning. I was wondering, how close are we to solving the unified field theory postulated by Einstein? I think we're going to make an advance in that before quantum physics. Well, I think what we're talking about here is when we have this James Webb telescope giving us this imagery, which is so incredible, and it's funny you mentioned this, Robert, because what are we seeing right now? We're seeing galaxies that are out to the edge of the universe, almost to the point where not to the very moment of the so-called expansion. And I don't like to use the term Big Bang. I think that's so, you know, so, uh, how do I say it, artificial in this, in this particular conversation. And now I'm trying to be a snob science person. But I think realistically, when we look back in time, what we see in the universe right now is that we're actually peering ourselves visually with this James Webb telescope almost to about what? About 380,000 years after this big expansion. And this is something totally incredible. And what Einstein still couldn't even figure out, he was even having a hard time trying to figure out what was holding this universe together. What was out there in the so-called vacuum of space he couldn't figure that out. He basically had a very, very, very hard time trying to figure out what was this material, if there was something. He called it ether, uh, something that, again, is, is very much postulated. But hopefully we'll get to answer this as time goes on. Thanks, Robert. Hey, uh, so you mentioned the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, the images that we have gotten from this James Webb Telescope have just been fascinating. And mm-hmm. evidently they're saying that this telescope has discovered the earliest galaxies yet seen. The images of galaxies that we're seeing produced by James Webb, do we have any idea what, if we were to look at them in real time, if that was possible, what's there now? Are we able to tell based on the trajectory of what no. happens with galaxies what's, what, what would be there now? No, it's impossible because what you're seeing is you're looking at something that was then and the now is we're not sure because we're looking so far back in time, we're almost looking at almost the time of the expansion. Mm. And, I mean, when the, I call it the expansion. People, people take me to task on that. Why don't you just call it the Big Bang? Because we weren't here, and the Big Bang il- illustrates that we're around something. This expansion took place in all directions in space, not just around us. But it goes back, Frank, all the way back to something very interesting – when this so-called expansion took place, we'll call it definitively 13.77 billion years ago. That's what astronomers believe pretty much factually. James Webb is peering so far back, almost to the point where right around 380,000 years after that expansion, the universe heated up incredibly. And we have what we call the cosmic microwave background radiation event. It's as if you took, let's say, some sugar and fried it into a skillet where it just burned and singed the entire skillet. And you know how those commercials, funny as it might be, where you can't, you know, something doesn't stick to this skillet and buy this one because it, you know, scoops right out. I'm a sucker for all those infomercials, by the way. Well, they're always out there, and people buy it, and hopefully the thing works. But here's the point. As this, (laughs) this universe is just singed, this event, took place 380,000 years after the expansion. And what I'm trying to say is we're peering back to see, we, we, we see that in the universe. That's really far back, don't you think? And I don't know how much time we have on this, but right close to the WABC headquarters, as we would say, 27 miles as the crow would fly, right down in Holmdel, New Jersey, where a great uh, discovery was made by Penzias and Wilson, these are two scientists from Bell Laboratories, there's this horn, they call it the Holmdel horn, and it's a relic of cosmology because this is where these two scientists actually found, they weren't looking for this, they discovered this cosmic microwave background radiation by working on a project called Project Echo. This was a project where they were you know, trying to bounce the signals off this big balloon called Project Echo back in the, in, you know, in the 1950s and 60s. And guess what? That project, that Holmdel Horn, is now was desi- excuse me was designated as a historic landmark in 1989 
but it's kind of just rotting away mm. because a developer bought the land and they want to put, you know, homes and condos there. So <laughs> they're trying to save it. But isn't that something worth saving? I, I think, think so. Piece. I think yes. so. Uh, because, but, and the, yeah. look, the developer knew it was a landmark when he purchased it, right? Right, right. But I don't get involved in that other than the fact that you bet they should save it. But back in 1978, these two gentlemen won a Nobel Prize in one of their most prolific things. But they're thinking of actually taking that home, Del Horn, and putting it down in West Virginia where there's this great radio telescope, you know, kind of a museum. But the reason I'm mentioning that is we're peering back with James hmm. Webb to the original origin of where the universe began and so close to the studios of WABC, say 27 miles away from downtown Manhattan, is this amazing relic of the discovery of one of the most prolific things about how the universe began so close to downtown Manhattan. How big is it if they were to relocate it to that that location or somewhere else? Uh, what sort of a what sort of a Herculean task is that? Uh, not really that big. I mean, it's not like a giant radio telescope hundreds of feet long, I believe and I don't know. I think you're talking about something that's maybe 20 or 30 feet long. But uh, it doesn't look, from the pictures I've seen, it looks like it needs a good paint job and restoration. But it is uh, truly uh, an American classic and one in science that uh, really needs more than just a little plaque saying, mm. you know, here, two guys did something really cool back in uh, the time they did it. Yeah, no, that uh, it's certainly worth saving as far as I'm Absolutely. concerned. One thing I want to get your take on, because I know you know a thing or two of not, about not just uh, outer space, but uh, flying on this planet as well, is the last 747 rolling off the assembly line, or however they come off the assembly line. Mm -hmm. The 747 seems to be, the last few decades, so associated with air travel that uh, I think a lot of us uh, just assume that it would be here for the foreseeable future. Why are they doing away with the 747, and what sort of jet is going to be replacing the 747? Well, it's amazing. I love this conversation as we get into the aviation side of the Dr. Sky world, because a long time ago, I had this great interview, a long time, this goes back about 15 years ago, and I had the privilege of speaking with a gentleman named Joe Sutter. Who was Joe Sutter? He was the designer of the 747. Hmm. And I was lucky enough, Frank, to get about 20, 30 minutes with him, and we did an interview. And why is this airplane so important? Because it really revolutionized aviation, just like the Boeing 707. That Tex Johnson flew over the Boeing you know, field and over the Washington boat races. He actually rolled the plane and almost got fired. He did a complete loop-la-loop -loop with that airplane. But Joe Sutter told me the story. He said the first city of Everett, that was the first Boeing 747, it just revolutionized you know, the entire air industry, made freighters out of it, and this aircraft goes down in history. But because of the economies of scale, other aircraft with the new jet engines, whether they be the CFM-56s that are on like 737s and more efficient engines, the Boeing 777 has really taken the place of that. And also the Dreamliner, the Boeing 787, I've never flown on one of those, but they're used on so many of these global routes right now and reaching and flying so far and wide. But the 747 lives on. And that was the one plane that we were so proud to fly on. A special iteration of the 747 was known as the Boeing 747 SP, the special performance. And that was the one that NASA bought from not a friend of mine, but a friend of mine flew that exact hmm. Pan Am airplane. And he, he flew that in the 1970s. And, and uh, NASA bought it and turned it into the Sophia Telescope airplane. But that was really cool because they made the shorty version in those days, like in the 70s, that it could fly longer. And in those days, it could, let's say, fly from New York to Johannesburg, South Africa. But nowadays, we have more efficient technology with carbon fiber, engines that can fly more efficiently. But there is one big beast in the sky still, and that's Airbus's competition with the A380. And that's that airplane that's not just a double, you know, like the Boeing 747 has an upper deck and a stretched. The A380, you've probably seen, it has a continuous upper deck, and that is one monster aircraft. And in the early days, you couldn't land that at certain airports because it literally would crack the runway. <laughs> it was almost like a million pounds of weight on the runway. Uh, that is wild. We're going to continue in just a moment with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, and we're going to tell you a story about the only astronauts ever 
to die in space. It's a wild, wild story, and you're not going to want to miss it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you have questions, we'll try and get to as many of them as we can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. the cosmos and through the clouds with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran TV and radio broadcaster and edutainer and a podcaster at WABCRadio.com. By the way, Steve, if people check out the Dr. Sky experience at WABCRadio.com these days, what can they be in store for? What are you focusing on? Well, each week, Frank, we have a Sky update there, and starting in 2023, what we're going to be doing is a long-form kind of a podcast show so people can listen to all these things that we talk about, an extended version from what we're doing here, because that's what people are asking for. But this week, we have some interesting interviews, and again, not only we're doing this about aviation, space, astronomy, and weather, but also for the longest time, I've always done a show about American exceptionalism and things like that. And I have an interesting one that's up there from an author that's a friend of mine, David Hanna. It's a book. Uh, it's called Broken Icarus. It's about the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago. Now, what does that have to do with anything that we would talk about in these realms? It has so much to do about aviation. And it talks about Jean Picard and his wife, and, excuse me, his sister, Jeanette. They were the early stratospheric balloonists. We talk about an Italian pilot named Italio Balbo who flew over to Chicago from Italy, these amazing seaplanes, and probably one of the most amazing of all those Zeppelin designers and pilots. We talk about Hugo Eckner. He flew the Graf Zeppelin. I didn't even know this, to Chicago for the World's Fair, and it's amazing because what we'll talk about there is the history of this particular World's Fair. They had one about 30 or 40 years before that, and guess how they opened up that Chicago World's Fair? News to me at the time, they had a telescope on Lake Michigan. It was pointed to the star Arcturus, which was some 35, 40 light years away. And the light of the star flipped a switch from a little photo cell, and it opened up the Chicago World's Fair. Great interview, and I hope people enjoy it as we take them back in time. I am looking forward to hearing that. As teased, I want you to tell us, we were talking a lot about what was going on in American space travel half a century ago, but Soviet and Russian space travel was very pioneering in a lot of different ways. But there was one very unfortunate incident in 1971, which resulted in the only instance of some astronauts actually dying in space. What happened? Well, the cosmonauts, this is interesting. We talk about them, sadly, God bless them. The astronauts that lost their lives on, you know, Shuttle Columbia, Challenger, and the loss of the crews. About 188 astronauts, as we talk about, have had fatalities involving space flight, accidents, you know, things like 188. that. 188. Wow. 188. But now here we come with the interesting point. A lot of these astronauts, even the Challenger and, of course, the other astronauts right, on Columbia, Columbia. Right. I'm talking about what astronauts, if any, ever died. And they have to be in space, for, obviously, for this discussion. That's above 50 miles, which is the Harmon line. We find out that the crew of this particular uh, Soyuz, Soyuz 11, these particular cosmonauts, Dobrovsky, Volkov, and Patsayev, they were launched to go up to the first of the Soviet space stations called Salyut 1. That was a big mistake. They didn't know this. They arrived there at the space station in June of 1971. They tried a hard time opening up the hatch. They get in, and the place smelled terribly. They didn't know why. 
they had fire a fire on board there. They stayed there for a short time. As they were leaving, they got back into their little Soyuz spacecraft, and something happened with the airlocks that they had in their systems to breathe. Mm. Something didn't work. They then deorbited, you know, that long ride, as they describe it, eight minutes of hell, because people have always described the entry on the Soyuz as that eight minutes of hell, because it seems probably I've never done it and I don't want to do it. But any American astronauts, before we had what Elon Musk is doing, they described that as literally just what I said, a ride from hell, like an express elevator to hell. What happened is something happened with that oxygen system. They died. But when they parachuted, the cosmonauts land on land. This is interesting. The parachute, they land on like Kazakhstan. When the astronauts, you know, the cosmonaut teams went to open up the hatch, they found that they had all died. And the graphic details I'll leave out, but they were bleeding and hemorrhaging from their eyes and from their ears because of atmospheric decompression in their suits as they entered the atmosphere. So there were the three that actually died in space. They're the only three to this date that have ever died wow. in space. Wow. Very sad. Absolutely. Uh, it certainly is. Not that what happened with the Challenger and the Columbia isn't right. also said. But, I, you know, I am surprised by that number of 188. I think most of us think of the, the Challenger. We think of the Columbia. We think of the incident right. that you just mentioned. What are the bulk of those 188 fatalities from? Well, there's accidents. Now, we have to remember the law of the list is very long. This is also around the world. These are aviation and training accidents. They're all things like that, including the astronauts that perished on the reentry in, not in space, but in through the atmosphere and reentry, you know, below that Kármán line. So we have a number of people. There were astronauts that never got to space that died in crashes. And let's not forget, January 27th, 1967, the sad loss of the Apollo 1 crew. They never were even mm. in space. They were on the ground and died in the horrific fire in the Apollo 1 capsule due to two very difficult hatches that couldn't be opened if they had to get out any time quickly. And the author that I interviewed on the book about that, he described it as if they had to get out, it would have taken them 30 or 40 minutes to open up those hatches by themselves. Well, that that is uh, that is certainly very sad. I just want to come back to an issue you alluded mm-hmm. to earlier, and that's sure. the breakthrough with nuclear fusion. It right. was being trumpeted yesterday by the uh, Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm. It was yes. reported uh, by the Financial Times earlier in the week. This seems like a major breakthrough. Is it an overstatement to say that this is one of the most remarkable energy breakthroughs in, in history? It is, but we have to be careful. Again, I'm not totally vested on this, and I'm always honest with you in the audience. What I can tell you is as if we took a laser and we fired it at something, and instead of decreasing the amount of energy that we're getting off the sub, you know, of what we're firing this at, we're seeing more energy come out of this than what they've been seeing in the past. Now, that may seem like a rather ridiculous explanation, but the point of the matter is how do you sustain the temperatures? This is the problem. The Chinese have worked on this. There's such a thing called a tokamak reactor where they're trying to develop the temperatures are the problems. And how do you sustain the temperatures? Because let's remember, the sun, the giver of all of our heat and all of our weather, this is the biggest nuclear fusion ball we have, 93 million miles away. Every second, the sun is transmuting without an exact number, but this is the generality some 780 million tons of hydrogen into about 740 Mm. million tons of helium. And it has been doing that without taking a break, without having any cardiac arrhythmia, if the sun could ever have one, you know, God help it if it did, because even some kind of a quiver in its output could cause a collapse of the entire core into the core. So what they're doing This is an amazing thing, but I think they have to be very careful how they're announcing it, because I think, unfortunately, sometimes the media, we all know, may jump to a rapid-fire conclusion here. This is still not going to happen. So I wouldn't expect anybody to expect a Tesla to come out in 2024 with a fusion-powered reactor. But you want to laugh? GM, I believe, had in the 1950s – this is not, not a joke – they had a concept car that had a small nuclear reactor in it. That would, that would actually be a car in the, in, the, in the nuclear age where you could actually have a car powered by a small nuclear reactor, not fusion. But the problem was, how do you get it serviced? And what would happen if you were driving the family to, say, see mom or grandma, 
and all of a sudden you had a small nuclear leak out of your beautiful styled 1950s Chevy or Ford, that could be a problem. You got me. Uh, 800-848-9222. Before we run out of time, let me squeeze in at least one more call here. Charles is in Brooklyn. Hello, Charles. Hi. Hi, Doctor. Nice to meet you. Good morning, sir. Hi. Uh, I hear you a lot before. I, just, uh, I never called. I'm a little, like, a little shy. Well, uh, shy don't be shy. Person. Welcome aboard. What's your That's question, okay. Charles? Hey, thank you for being oh, here. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I love to listen, though. I've been listening for a long, long time. A lot of my friends are pilots. Uh, my question is this. Back in 1972, when I was a Boy Scout, my mom gave me these pictures. Uh, it's like a print set, 10 inch by 11 inch, of the one of the moon landings. Yes. And I showed one of the guys before in my Coast Guard unit. He told me, oh, that's a fake. Those are not real. We never went to the moon. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I never, I, I still kept them. I'm not going to throw them away. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> give them my mother. But yeah. Oh, you bet. Uh, I'm just... Yeah, I'm just curious. They're black and white. My mom worked then for Kodak Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the back of each, uh, each photo uh, is a number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're black and white. They're like 10 inch by 11 inch. Those Real quick, pictures. Charles, because we're running out of time. Yeah. What's your question exactly? Uh, how can I get those pictures like a proof to, to know that they're legitimate? Well, it's a hard question to answer in this short time, Charles. But you know what I would do? I would save them. Yeah. Obviously, that's the understatement of the year. You may have something very rare there, but hopefully somehow, let's talk again. Uh, Maybe we can help you further in the time allotted today. I know that's uh, difficult, but save them because sometimes people have the strangest things. I know a guy went to the Goodwill one time and found the Constitution of the United States, and guess what? It was a real copy, unbeknownst to him. You might have something that's very rare. That's pretty neat. Uh, if you want to hear more from Dr. Sky, you can go to WABCRadio.com. If you want to read the Dr. Sky blog, you can check out KTAR.com. Steve, if people have questions for you about anything we've covered this hour, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Well, right for now, until we have a WABC email there, it's just Dr. Sky's show at gmail.com. And again, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and hopefully Happy New Year in 2023. That's what we wish for you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, the, it always seems like we never have enough time. I look forward to our next engagement. The one and only Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. In the meantime, in the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars.